Right. I'm here with Roger Koops. Um, he had a fantastic article out recently. He's a contributing author for AIER, the American Institute of Economic Research, and he is a retired scientist. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, welcome. And uh, you're also you're also living in Japan, so that was we had to do some scheduling to to make this work. But thank you, thank you for making this work. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm glad we were able to work out the difficulties. Yes, <laughs> yes, we had a few technical hangups getting getting started. Um, this was a phenomenal piece. You you wrote this really really incredible piece called "The Year of Disguises." Um, I recommend it to everyone. It's on AIER, and you kind of take on the whole the the mainstream view of not just masks, because this is about masks and whether they work or not, but the whole, how we see viruses and how we see viruses interacting in our environment. So you kind of, I'm just going to read one, um, a quote from the beginning of your piece, because this really, it's a departure from how I think everyone else or a lot of people are thinking about viruses and about masks. Um, so you say, it's been clear from the start that the modelers have no idea of how a virus works in the natural world. They've based their modeling on the assumption that the culprit is the human being. The human being must be controlled in order to control the virus. This is completely wrong. So why is that completely wrong? Well, the modeler's view is oversimplistic. So the human being is really just another source of transmission, not the source, just a source of transmission. Once you get into an epidemic or pandemic mode, the virus just goes everywhere. I mean, we cannot see it. We don't have, you know, little handheld virus detectors to help us try to find it. So it literally goes everywhere. So to try to gain control of something that becomes ubiquitous in our environment is really impossible to do. And then you say, you, um, later on, you, you said that, um, that we really don't, you said because of their small size, we really don't know how they truly exist in the environment. They could be floating around as individual molecules. They could aggregate, they can attach to other particles. So, so, is it safe to assume that they're just kind of everywhere or do we think that they congregate in some places more than others? Do we know anything about how they behave? Not very much. Um, the only way we can image them is with electron microscopes in a laboratory in a very static condition. So, you know, basically on a slide spraying bits of metal on them so that we can image them. So, you know, out in the open environment, whether that be outside or indoors, it is virtually impossible to understand, you know, where they might be. We have to view it like, you know, some kind of environmental toxin, really, that is can go just about anywhere. So what, is, what does that mean, then, for... Masks. I mean, there's this huge controversy over masks. And, you know, early on, the, the prevailing wisdom was they're not going to do any good. Don't don't bother with them. And then all of a sudden, 
and you know, it started looking like, oh, they might be making a difference in, in some parts of Asia and other places, so we should wear them. And then there are studies kind of on both sides. And and I I'm not I'm not gonna pretend that I've looked at all of those studies that I've really dug deeply into this, but you know, there there is there's you know, when people look at, at correlations between mask use and mortality from COVID, um, there's 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 actually an inverse correlation, at least from from what I've seen. There's you know the the places that have the higher levels of mask use actually have have higher rates of of COVID mortality. So there doesn't seem to be just from what I've seen, there doesn't really seem to be a strong argument in favor of masks. Do you think that you know from what you've said about viruses? Do you do you think there's any point at all in in wearing masks? Well, I think that under certain conditions, um, masks can prove useful. And I kind of made that point at the end of the article. But it's really in very controlled conditions for short durations and with a specific goal in mind. So, for example, you know, going into an elderly care facility uh, where the people are really susceptible not only to the virus, but also to bacterial infection. Um, you know, wearing a mask in that kind of, and by the way, the mask that I am referring to would be like something like a surgical mask or, you know, a pretty protective sort of thing. Um, in those very controlled sets of circumstances, it, it could provide some benefit. So it's not completely useless, but you have to you know, try to identify how you're going to use it and what is going to be the outcome of that use. And as far as cloth masks, how much of a difference is there between surgical masks and cloth masks when we're talking about viruses? Uh, there's quite a world of difference, actually. <laughs> there's um, The whole idea of the cloth mask, to be quite frank, when the CDC recommended that back in March or April. Um, my jaw literally hit the ground. I, I couldn't believe that the CDC was actually coming out and saying such a thing. Um, cloth masks have been studied before in particularly with influenza wards and found to be highly ineffective in stopping viruses. Um, you know, the cloth materials that are used, just nobody has made a material that is intended to try to block a nanoparticle. Uh, cloth materials are intended to actually breathe to allow air to get through. So they're really not that effective at all. So it was very surprising to me that it even went in that direction. Um, and I really can't explain why they, why they decided to do that. Now, what about bacteria is, is because, you know, as you explain in your piece, um, when we're talking about bacteria, it's much larger particles. Would cloth masks be effective in, in preventing bacterial transmission? Possibly. Um, you can kind of think, at least I think of like a cloth mask as being almost like a hanky handkerchief 
draped around your mouth and nose. So um, you can provide a, some stoppage of the bacterial particles uh, using that kind of using that kind of a mask. I think so. It does serve a somewhat of a purpose um, with bacteria, but it's not really been fully studied. So we don't really know how much a benefit there can be from that. Um, I recommend to people that you know who want to wear the cloth masks or even other masks that you still cannot ignore the standard practice of covering your face when you cough or sneeze because that exertive force will you know blow things through the fabric through the material so you can't just assume that you're blocking everything especially when you cough or sneeze and you also talk in the paper you talk a little bit about um you know again getting back to the nature of viruses and how they so for example if a virus is on a droplet the mask might affect the droplet, but the, the virus is still there. Or if the droplet evaporates, the virus is still there. And so you've got these viruses out in the atmosphere, maybe attached to masks. And you talked a little bit about how masks can sort of, you know, correct me if I'm, if I'm misinterpreting this, but how a mask could serve sort of as a repository for viruses. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly. And I, actually, that is kind of the danger point that I see in, in, in where any kind of a mask wearing, particularly long term people using them going from place to place, you know, all the time. Um, they do act as kind of, I don't know, a repository is a good, good term. If there's virus around, um, the mask acts acts as a central locator, if you will, of the virus. It will attach to the mask. And if it's coming from you, you know, the person wearing the mask, you know, it's not going to make so much difference because you already have the virus. But when you go walking around and you, you know, cough or do something, it will expel virus from the mask surface. So you're actually kind of being another source of transmission by moving around carrying that mask. Likewise, if you're out and you don't have the virus, but if you're exposed to the virus and if the mask does stop the virus, it's now on the mask and it's located centrally near your mouth and nose, which is, and your eyes as well, which is going to make the um, possibility of contact transmission even greater. And there's this perception that you know, that our mouths and noses are kind of, you know, you were talking about this a little bit earlier, are kind of the place where the virus comes from. It sounds like it's more, it's more that's a place where you wouldn't want the virus to go because it's, then it's going to get inside of you. But really, if you're out in the world, the virus could be on someone's clothing, it could be on in their hair, it could be, you know, on, on a piece of plastic or something like that. Is that sort of a more accurate way of looking at viruses? Yes, yes. So the virus doesn't know where it's going. It's just going to find a surface. So essentially any surface is, you know, is true game for it. Um, the type of surface will determine how long it survives. And that's kind of the critical point. And, you know, we need to try to think about how to more eliminate the virus from the surfaces as opposed to 
thinking that it only goes towards the face and mouth and, and so forth. So cleaning makes sense, keeping, getting surfaces clean. Yes, is a smart thing to do. Um, and then you said something else about, so this was interesting that um, certain kinds of the plastics can make viruses more, they're more stable on plastics than they are on certain metals. So what does that tell us about, for example, these big plastic barriers that are being erected in shops and in, and in some schools, you've got these big plexiglass sort of containment shields. What, what should we think about those? I'll, I'll tell you, from my viewpoint as a scientist, those things make me the most nervous because I understand the idea of it. They're thinking that, okay, we can protect people by stopping, again, the idea is stopping droplets, right? So, but the same thing happens with the plastic surfaces is that if the virus is there, it will congregate on the plastic surface and the plastic surface gives it a considerable amount of lifetime. Uh, for coronavirus, the reported lifetime, it's got a half-life of almost eight hours on plastic surfaces. That's an incredibly long time. And if you bump the plastic surface, if you touch against it, anything can basically knock the virus off of it and put it back into the environment. So it becomes a contact source as well as an airborne source um, of the virus. So it's, I see these things as kind of not very good at all. I, 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 when I'm out shopping and they're there, I am like very careful to avoid getting close to them, to touching them. Um, th those surfaces really, really worry me. What, what are some better surfaces? What are some surfaces that, you know, for which a, a, a virus would have a, a much shorter half-life? Uh, some of the um, hard metal surfaces like copper is pretty good. Um, copper surfaces, so what tends to happen is the surface of the metal can actually act as like a catalyst to breaking down the virus molecule itself. So some, some types of surfaces are good at that. Um, actually, skin is pretty good surface. Um, we have natural oils in our skin and sweat, and those work pretty well at breaking down these viruses. It is known that, for example, with influenza, which operates pretty closely to the coronavirus out, outside of the body, that within five to 10 minutes of contact on the skin, it's, it's breaking down. Wow. So the skin is actually pretty good. Wow. Um, Non-reactive surfaces like stainless steel. Stainless steel is meant to not be reactive, so it doesn't rust. Those kinds of surfaces give more stability um, to the molecule because there's nothing to interact with it and help it to break down. Interesting. There, so there was something else that you said um, uh, about nanoparticles. Uh, okay, you said we cannot begin to see these, but as nanoparticles, we should assume that they, meaning viruses, can remain air suspended for long periods of time and are taken up by the local air movement patterns. Is that, is that normally what nanoparticles do? do we, is that an assumption or is that something we kind of know about nanoparticles? Well, it's kind of both. Um, we cannot, you've probably seen some of the, they videos of uh, imaging videos 
of like when a person sneezes or, or something like that, and they show these particles spewing out, um, you know, in, in slow motion. Um, those, what you, can, what you can visualize on those kinds of um, experiments are microparticles. So we cannot visualize down really below the micron level. So what we're seeing is the larger particles, basically the droplets, mm -hmm. when they do those imaging experiments. So, but below that, we really cannot image it. So we don't really know very well um, what it's doing. But what we do know from mechanics is that the smaller the particle, the more distribution it will have, you know, in the air. So larger particles go less distance. They tend to start to settle quicker. Um, they lose their moisture a little bit slower. As you get to smaller particles, they lose their moisture quicker. They tend to go out farther. They can disperse much easier. So that, that we do know, but we really cannot visualize down at the nanoparticle level. So we have to try to know what we know about air, air current patterns and um, go from there. That's so interesting because, you know, there's this, um, this fear word, um, airborne, you know, when we talk about viruses, we talk about contagion, um, you say, you say airborne and it's like that renders something terrifying. But from what you're saying, it sounds like viruses being nanoparticles means that they're all probably airborne anyway. Is that, is that taking that too far? Is that, is that right? Well, it, it depends on the circumstance, really, and, you know, where you're at. Um, but the thing about being airborne is that dispersion can become a factor. So if you are airborne, if you have, a, you know, a, um, the nanoparticle in an open environment outside, it disperses very quickly. So, you know, winds pick it up and it, it disperses. So as you kind of reduce the concentration in the air, um, you know, the level of risk goes way, way, way down. Mm -hmm. Indoors, it's a different situation because indoor you have maybe air conditioning units, you have, uh, you know, closed circulation. It becomes much more complicated on the indoors um, as to how the air moves and whether you're actually dispersing the particles, if you're dispersing them, uh, they then can settle and land on various things and become contact sources. So it's quite a bit of different story, whether indoors or outdoors. And then the other issue that we hear a lot about with that is sunlight. What, what, what's, what does sunlight do to viruses? Well, it's the UV in sunlight that is important. Um, UV is kind of a natural sterilizer. Uh, it tends to break down organic molecules of all types uh, relatively quickly. And, you know, that is really the kind of the best thing out there is the natural UV radiation from the sun. Um, that is why places like, you know, the surface of Mars and the moon, they, they're, they're sterile environments because organic molecules simply cannot survive long under intense UV radiation. So it's the UV that really acts as, as the sterilizer, if you will, in the natural environment. 
So this whole what we've what we've experienced in parts of the U.S. and parts of the world, the whole lockdown thing, where you know where I live, the way it started was you know or the, I'm in California, and our governor gave this order, which you know the legality of that's a different issue, but um, you know he basically said don't leave your house unless it's for such and such reasons, unless it's these you know really critical, critical reasons. But in, in light of what you're saying, what others have said, it sounds like that's possibly the stupidest thing to tell people is why, what's the thinking behind, and probably, you know, you don't have any insights into this, but what do you think the thinking is behind telling people to stay indoors, to, um, isolate from each other, isolate from, from everything, you know, stay out of the sunlight, basically. Well, for what I can tell in looking at some of the computer models, it's basically the concept of the modeling is that human interaction is drives the, the virus. So the idea of the modelers is you just stop human interaction as, as much as possible. Therefore, the virus will go away. So the whole concept of lockdown, uh, you know, what was kind of sold at the beginning was to flatten the curve, but that's not really what the modeling is, is saying. The modeling is saying we stop human interaction, we stop the virus. And that's kind of where the whole concept, I think, of the lockdown originates. And from what you're saying is that's just a faulty premise. Is that correct? It, well, it certainly... Now, in this case, yes, with a, with a URI, upper respiratory infection, I think it's a faulty premise for the following reason, is that this virus is acts so much like any other upper respiratory complaint, um, viral or bacterial, that it can be going through the population readily for a long period of time before it's recognized, which is I think becoming more evident that that's what happened. Mm -hmm. So once it's out there, spread well in the population, uh, you know, trying to separate people it does no good. I mean, it's the concept of isolating people like that may work in some some sort of case, like say maybe Ebola, mm -hmm. where you have a very narrow uh, part of a population where it's quickly identifiable that oh, this disease is going. And we can prevent the transmission by, by basically quarantining people in, in that kind of a case, because you can identify it quickly, you know it's happening real time, and you can take those kinds of actions. So it may be useful in that kind of scenario. But with, you know, a, a, a ubiquitous virus like this, where it's already been spread around the world, that, that's just futile. Mm -hmm. And are there are there other differences between something like the Ebola virus and um, SARS-CoV-2 as far as transmission? Like would, um, you know, is it, for example, is it more difficult to contract Ebola? Do you have to have closer contact with someone in order to get it? Or if you're, you know, in a community where people have Ebola, is it also fair to say that, yeah, the Ebola virus could be on any surface, or does it does it behave differently? Uh, that's a good question. I'm I'm not really that up on Ebola. I do know that um, 
you know, one of the big problems with Ebola, why it, you know, it, it's so dangerous is that it's a hemorrhagic type disease. Mm -hmm. So um, contact transmission source, uh, particularly amongst healthcare workers and family members is, is particularly bad because um, of the hemorrhagic nature, uh, people's bodily fluids get, you know, are being excuted with, with the, with the um, virus. And so bedding and linens and clothes and all of that start to become contaminated. So it's a much, I think a much more uh, localized problem when it comes to contact transmission with Ebola. Uh, there is, uh, you know, the oral nasal oral route of uh, emission as well. Um, and there is also feces emission, which there is also in coronavirus. So, but I think because of just the nature of the disease, it is it is much more of a contact localized type of transmission. Mm -hmm. So apart from sort of the, the whether or not we can contain it, one of the big debates right now is about whether it's even a good idea to try and contain it. The, you know, the Great Barrington Declaration came out a couple weeks ago talking about this, and, and others have been talking about it really since the beginning, that the way humanity has interacted with pathogens or viruses in particular in the past, you know, for thousands of years has been to come in contact with them. And particularly, you know, if young people come in contact with them first, protect the elderly, protect those at risk and develop herd immunity. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it actually kind of surprised me what, has all transpired in 2020. Um, and I mean, herd immunity is not a fringe concept. Herd immunity has been the standard for, you know, five or six decades of infectious disease management. Um, and it just recognizes the fact that you know, we do interact with our environment and viruses are a part of our natural environment. And our best defense against them is to build up our own immunity against them. Um, that's really, the virus really doesn't want to kill you. A, a virus is not very successful if it starts killing a lot of its hosts. Mm -hmm. The virus just wants to propagate. So, um, you know, we have to learn how to manage ourselves with the virus in our environment. Yeah, you said, um, this was kind of at the beginning of your piece. Um, I'll just read from this. You said, uh, the crisis is not from some seasonal virus, which is a health issue, but it is from ourselves and what we have devolved into as a species, social, cultural, ideological issues. Could you say a little bit more about that? What, what do you think is kind of at the root of, of this crisis? Oh, well, that's a, <laughs> that is a, that is a big and good question. Um, th there are so many components to the reaction to you know the the pandemic, uh, it, it's it's hard. There, there's definitely political components that I thought were kind of obvious at the very beginning. When I looked at the countries that first started the lockdowns and did them hard, they were also countries that had significant internal political problems. Mm -hmm. Italy, Spain, France. Um, I mean. We know how China reacts to things, so I kind of yeah. eliminate China from from the picture. But um, you know these these countries 
clamped down hard and fast, but they have been enduring, you know, a lot of political unrest over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And so I found that whole thing kind of interesting. Um, to me, it seemed too coincidental that, you know, the kind of the countries that were really struggling with political unrest were the ones who were suddenly clamping down and, and going into things like that. Um, so I think there's there was a lot of politics involved in trying to maybe get some control over the situation. Um, there have been a lot of other interplays. I think, you know, there's been what I call the science vultures. Um, there, there are a lot of scientists who see this as an opportunity to start getting a longer publication list and, um, you know, jump, jumping onto a bandwagon. It, I don't know, there's just so, so many different aspects to it that, that well, there's certainly a lot of money whole, involved. There is a lot of money involved, and that is something that um, I, you know, when I go back to the beginning, and you mentioned the herd immunity, I read a piece back in, I think it was February, maybe middle of February, later in February, and I don't remember, it was either the, the Guardian, or I think it was maybe the Guardian, and it was disparaging the concept of herd immunity. And I remember reading that, and I'm going, what in what is this? I mean, herd immunity, that's just, that's how we normally deal with this. Why, why are they writing about that? But as time kind of went on and we got into the, the lockdowns and stuff, I began, and the, the panic started, and I began to start to see a pattern of, you know, in order to get governments or whatever to accept the, you know, the lockdowns and these kinds of measures, they really had to try to undermine the foundation of the standard of infectious disease practice. And there were a lot of attacks early on on, on that. And, and it, you know, it continues to this day, obviously, the Great Barrington Declaration, uh, you know, has come under huge attack. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, that is, that's been the standard. You know, what, what has been done in 2020 has never been done before. It is not the standard. Um, it, is, it is a complete worldwide experiment. And that is just incredible. It's just turned it upside down. Yeah, yeah. One thing I'm really curious about, um, because I lived in Japan for a couple of years. Uh, this was back in the 90s. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm aware of, to me, there's a huge cultural difference between America and Japan. Um, I don't think that's controversial to say that. I've been really, I've been, I've, as, as sort of, as much as I shouldn't be, I've been surprised by how much, how willing Americans have been to go, not only to go along with this, but also to be divided by it and to really just, you know, there are the two sides. There's the, there are the lockdowners, the anti-lockdowners, the maskers, the anti-maskers, and just how, how willing people are to, go after the other side and to just, you know, make them their enemy and just really buy into that divisiveness. And I'm just wondering if you see any of the same thing going on in Japan, how can you talk about any of the cultural has, has it had an impact on society, on culture, on how people interact with each other? Not really, not, not, at least not 
where I live, it's it's not been quite that as bad as in the U.S. Um, the, the Japanese people tend to kind of they're kind of like a, a you know a flock of starlings. They sort of all flow together in the same direction. Um, where I live in in Kumamoto, uh, we never had a lockdown. It, this this place never went to lockdown. Um, it's kind of been strange because they closed things down for quite some time, schools and government functions closed, but there was really no lockdown. Um, but there was enough fear put in the people that people didn't do things. So it mm -hmm. kind of had the same effect as a lockdown, but you could still go out and, and you know, go to restaurants, you could take the buses and taxis. I mean, all of those things functioned. And which I always thought was kind of interesting. But, you know, at the beginning, um, at the beginning of March, when they kind of stopped all the functions, at first, it, it, for the people, it was kind of like this big family holiday. I mean, the parks were crowded with, with <laughs> families and kids, you know, nobody, the, the government said the same thing at the beginning, you know, don't worry about wearing masks and stuff, go, you know. We just need to kind of get a handle on the situation, you know, treat it like you would if it's just influenza. And so people were out with their kids in the parks, crowded. It was an amazing thing. And then suddenly came the worldwide lockdown thing. Um, and the Japanese government was challenged by that by the opposition government in Tokyo. And with that then came sort of a prefectural choice as to what to do. Uh, the large cities, Tokyo and Osaka, they slammed down pretty hard, but many of the other prefectures didn't go that route. And I live in one that, that didn't do that. Um, so there, there hasn't, there's been kind of a, quite a wide range of approach here, but there has been no really clear division amongst the people. Hmm. Um, for, for example, a lot of, a lot of people still wear masks here, but a fair percentage have stopped. I never have, um, unless I have absolutely have to, to, to get into somewhere. Uh, but I don't get threats. I don't get people, you know, treating me horribly or um, anything else like that. It's, you know, I go into stores and, and I am treated courte courteously. People don't shy from me. Sometimes people will, you know, kind of give me a, <laughs> a birth, but uh, most, mostly it's, you know, it's very civil. Um, and, you know, people just kind of carry on. And I, someday somebody in the government will probably come out and say, oh, you don't need to wear a mask anymore. And everybody will toss their mask aside. That's what I kind of think will happen. Mm -hmm. um, another thing I was wondering about with um, in Japan, I don't know if, if you had this issue, but I'm, I'm sure you've heard about, you know, what happened in New York and what's happened, happened in, in some other places here in the U.S. where, a lot of the deaths were concentrated in nursing homes and care facilities for elderly people. Is that, was that also the case in Japan? Yes, pretty much. The most of the deaths occurred elderly people and probably about 60 or 70% of those were in um, long-term care facilities. And in Japan, by the way, it was mostly over 80 group that was hit. Wow. And another thing that it was a little bit interesting, um, I haven't checked real recently, but um, maybe a couple of months ago I checked and the, they were giving the percentage of 
uh, fatalities based upon hospitalizations with over 80 group. 90% uh, of hospitalized patients over 80 survived and wow. were released. Wow. Only, only a 10% fatality rate amongst hospitalized elderly people over 80. Wow. So very, I don't very know. low. Yeah, I don't know what that number is in the U.S., but that sounds that that sounds incredible. Um, yeah, it's a it's a very low very low lethality rate, really, when you think about over. Yeah, yeah, and that's wow. Um, do you happen to know? Was there has anyone looked at prefecture by prefecture the ones who were that were more open versus the ones that really locked down? Was there a difference there in in numbers? Well, it's a little bit hard to tell because the places that have had the most you know, are the large cities like Tokyo. And they're the ones that locked down. They're the ones that locked down. But still the numbers, are, I mean, when you consider Tokyo, uh, you know, a city of almost 10 million, the, the Tokyo area, um, the numbers were not very high, even at the peak. Uh, and the same with Osaka and Fukuoka. Mm. Um, even now, they, they're still what I call baseline noise. So every day mm -hmm. on the news, you know, oh, we have a hundred new cases today in Tokyo. And well, you know, you, you know, Japan, they love their convenience stores. You know, you can mm -hmm. hundred people going into one convenience store in an hour is probably a low number. Yeah. So, and everything's um, plastic in there. Yeah. Everything's plastic and covered. And, and, you know, so what people don't, really understand this is what bothers me also about the politicians is like there's some idea like we have to get the case number down to zero mm -hmm. well that's impossible that's impossible no matter what virus you're talking about there's always going to be a low level of activity and that's kind of the baseline activity and that's maybe what we're seeing right now at least in, in japan i think it's just kind of hovering right around you know one day 100 cases the next day 70 cases then maybe the next day, 110 cases, and then down to 60. And it's just kind of gradually diddling along, you know, but 100 people out of a city of 10 million, that's just nothing. And when you say cases, are you talking about positive test results? Or are you talking about people who are actually showing symptoms and, and needing Well, attention? that's positive test results. Um, like, like everywhere else, I think that such a stigma has been put around you know, even having this, I think a lot of people who have symptoms just simply don't go to a clinic or a doctor. Mm -hmm. uh, as long as as long as it doesn't start getting too bad for them, nobody is 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 going to do that because there is such a stigma around it. Where they're doing a lot of testing, of course, is like in universities and schools and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So if somebody shows up. So what we're seeing is a very kind of focused area segment of society getting positive results, which, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure what that means because there's been a lot of controversy about the PCR test mm -hmm. and rightly so. So it's just kind of this lingering sort of thing, but we don't really have a true picture of how much the disease has gone before and how much is truly going on right now. It's, it's just very difficult to get a, a good view of that. Yeah. 
Is your sense that that things are going to be back to normal pretty soon in Japan, or where do you where do you see it going? It going? Yeah, I, I think the Japanese government is kind of like slowly ramping back, hmm. um, kind of desensitizing the people, if you will. Um, it seems like every time there are more and more events going on. The couple of weeks ago, they came out and said it's okay to hold events of up to five thousand people. Hmm. So, and um, you know, the, there are crowds in the baseball stadiums watching the games. They have to wear masks, but if you when they pan around, most people have the masks down and they're eating hot dogs and stuff. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you that the virus doesn't know that you're eating a hot dog, so right. it really makes no difference. Um, but you know, it's it's a gradual return, and I think there is quite a financial motive actually in it. Japan really needs the Olympics to go next year, right? Right. And if they you can't have a virtual Olympics. They want people no. to come to Japan. So I think, you know, they're kind of trying to show the world, get to a point where, hey, you know, we can function kind of normally back in society. Yep. And That's my feel, opinion anyway. And you, do you feel like, it, it sounds like, um, you know, regardless of what the government's saying, it sounds like the sentiment overall is that people are kind of calming down about it. Is that accurate? I think so. Uh, I mean, my, from what I can experience, I, I, I think that um, from what I see a lot, a lot of people are, you know, just kind of getting tired of it, the mm-hmm. whole thing. So, mm-hmm. so there's kind of a, a fatigue that's setting in on people and they're just kind of, eh, whatever. Yeah. And have you seen, have you seen the same thing in, in the U.S.? I mean, I guess since you didn't really have lockdowns outside of the big cities so much, um, has there been an impact on small businesses and, you know, sort of mom and pop shops and that sort of thing? Oh, yes. The, even, even here in, in Kumamoto is a city of a half a million people. So it's not exactly a small city, but by Japan standards, it's just kind of a city. Um, but it, yeah, for sure, there's been a, a large impact, particularly in the service industries. So uh, restaurants and bars and, um, you know, other small shops, uh, entertainment has ground to a halt. Uh, I, I played with a symphony here in Kumamoto and of course all concerts and stuff of any significant size have stopped. So culture has kind of ground to a halt. Um, so there's a lot of damage that is, you know, occurring in that, in that direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at least it sounds like you've got there's there's some motivation to get back to normal um, as opposed to as opposed to here in California, for example. Yeah, it, I mean, it seems to be. Um, I, I think that you know there there hasn't been really, from what I can tell, too much talk politically about you know trying to return to lockdowns or anything like that. It's just basically trying to manage what what's happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Um, you have any, any other thoughts, anything else that, that you wanted to add? No, I guess, you know, for, for people who, you know, read the essays or, or listen, um, you know, it, panic is not the way to go. Um, I have, uh, I have operated by the basic principle that, you know, kind of 
knowledge is the antidote to panic. So, you know, people need to kind of do their research and try to understand the situation. And that will go a long way, I think, to knocking down the panic. And if people start to become less afraid and start to understand really what the situation is, I, I think, you know, things will start to start to work their way back to normal. I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you too. Thank you so much. It was great having you. Thank you very much.